short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the Cold War, right? Yeah, that's that's us, Mr. and Mrs. Cold War. This is Cold War two thirty nine. Um, ostensibly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're still telling the story right. of um, executing the Rosenbergs. Right. But, uh, you know, my brain. Let's take a break. My brain's yeah, just like sidetracked, yeah. uh, sidetracky. Side yeah, 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 yeah. So Tangent, tangenty. 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 Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see a squirrel and I have to go after it. Doesn't matter what's <laughs> happening at the time. You do. Right. And? So we're in 1950, right? Al Jahis uh, has been convicted yeah. of perjury, as we explained on the last couple of episodes. The U.S. public right. is convinced that he, a top U.S. diplomat, strategist, mm-hmm. has secretly been a communist spy. And this is coming on top of Mao winning the Chinese Civil War. Um, right. So the build-up to the Korean War is happening. Yeah. And... With all of this going on, like the U.S. is sort of right. majorly paranoid about communists inside their government, inside their society, getting ready to take yes. over the world. Um, like the the horror of the idea that the communists might take over the world, and you know everybody might be given enough yeah. to eat, and uh, you know <laughs> and learn how to read, have healthcare. And education <laughs> is horrifying to Americans in 1950. We can't have that. We must stop this. We must stop this now. You'll be right, but the American way, you know, we fought World War II. Everything's about to come to a crashing end because of spies and their communist ways. And, yeah, we have to do something about this. So on February 1st, 1950, amongst all of this fear, paranoia, President Truman, trying to look as tough Mm -hmm. as possible for a small man with uh, John Lennon glasses, announces (laughs) he's ordered scientists to build a hydrogen bomb to, quote, defend the nation against a possible aggressor and keep an edge over the communists. Now, as we have talked about in previous episodes, maybe three years ago, four years ago (laughs) in this series, I think, the... Soviets had successfully <laughs> tested their first atomic bomb. This was in September 1949. So it's four or right. five months later that uh, Truman says, okay, we need a bigger bomb. Now, yes. Oppenheimer urged Truman mm-hmm. not to do it. Uh, by right. the way, new film by Christopher Nolan coming out, I think, in July, starring Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer. Yeah, I saw the previews. Um and and just uh you know shout out to our deceased number one fan uh Victor Santoki oh, um, right uh Victor Santoki was a big Oppenheimer fan when it, the first time I was in LA and he picked me up well not the first time I was in LA but the first time I hung out with Victor in LA he right. um drove me past Oppenheimer's office 
at uh, Caltech, I think, and he's like, this is Oppenheimer's Oppenheim office. Blah, blah, blah. So he would have loved this film. And every time I'm reading about Oppenheimer, yeah. I think about Victor and, um, Aww, you know. Good guy. Good he people. was a good guy, lovely guy, big fan. Yeah. Now he's yeah. a tree. Did you know that? He's a tree now, Victor. No, but aren't we all destined to be trees or something like that? We come from the earth. Yeah. We go back to the yeah. anyway. No, that's that's freaking cool for him. Did he have a seat? Uh, seeds? <laughs> Did he have his ashes planted in something or or what specifically? Did he do? No, his lovely wife Ellen. Um, yeah, used this service where they took his remains and mm-hmm. compressed it down to some mulch. And right. a, a tree, a seed was put in it. A tree sprouted out of his oh, cool. his remains, and then that's been planted with uh, in some sort of uh, woodsy area just outside of LA, right. where he used to like to go hiking. He was a big hiker and bike rider. He used to go hiking. That's little, little tree there. There's a little plaque remembering Victor. Right. This tree. I think that's a nice. It's a nice. Uh, yeah, he's way to do it. Giving back. He's giving yeah. back to the earth. He's acknowledging his origins. Good for him. Anyway, Oppenheimer, the guy who pretty mm. much ran the atomic bomb project, the Manhattan Project scientists, mm-hmm. he ran the, right. the scientific um, side of it. Part of it. He yep. tries to convince Truman not to do it. Truman tells him to go fuck himself and <laughs> qu- questions his loyalty. And not long after that, Oppenheimer is – accused of communist affiliations, has his security clearance revoked, et cetera, et cetera, which is a story for another time. But um, just the very fact that, you know, the, the the head of the scientists of the Manhattan Project had the temerity to say, you know what, I think bigger bombs isn't the solution here. Um, right. He, well, he was put through the ringer by the U.S. government. Absolutely not. But but not only that, and, and I don't want to mess up your, your timeline here, but at one point he goes, why don't we take the, the, the material that we currently have and I can make you just a whole bunch of what I like to call normal atomic bombs. You don't need the super. Let me give you just a whole bunch of these because, you know, a destroyed city is a destroyed city. But as we I think we've already kind of touched on this in the series. You know, Truman has, has a certain mentality, a certain aspect. He's from the Midwest. He's in FDR's shoes. He he knows he doesn't know anything. And so no, he's got to keep ratcheting it up because he thinks that's how you do it. But if I have 50 atomic bombs and you have 50 super bombs, yes, my place is gonna look a lot uglier when we're all done, but we're both dead. Uh but again, that wasn't but would you say that for Truman? This was more political than literally just trying to survive the next war. I think he's just got to look, you know, like we've said a billion times, he's got to look tough uh, standing up to the communists so the, so the Republicans can't give him a hard time. But, uh, but I think Oppenheimer had the good, had, had the right idea. I can make you as many bombs as you want. We don't need to go for this. And let's try not to set the entire atmosphere on fire while we're doing it. Because, again, they're going to be going into the semi-unknown trying to construct this thing. Yeah, I think the I think there's truth in all of that. Um, like we we know we've talked about this many times that the political atmosphere in the U.S. by 1950 mm-hmm. was one where Democrats have been in power for what, seven years, uh, no, seventeen years at that stage. Yeah, since thirty three. Uh, thirty three. Um, they've been through World War Two. 
there's the whole Yalta agreements uh, that where Roosevelt gets criticised for being too weak on Stalin. The Republicans right. are really hitting the Democrats hard as being weak on communism mm-hmm. and they have to respond or they feel like they have to respond by trying to look as tough as right. possible. That's been Truman's MO since he got the top job yeah. in uh, early '45. But um, the, the interesting side of this is that Oppenheimer himself was very um, pro dropping the first bombs. He was yes. he was a big advocate for dropping the bombs, that they needed to use them in a real-world scenario. Um, after they were dropped, he sort of was horrified at what had happened yeah. and had a complete yeah. change of heart. Truman claimed to have a change of heart sort of as well, but as we'll see, so the next couple of episodes anyway, people are going to be about the development of the hydrogen bomb. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Oppenheimer and Truman both had a change of heart, but we're gonna, I'm going to explore this idea that, you know, the U.S.'s justification, as we know, for dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were it was to prevent an invasion of, of Japan um, and, and it was right. to end the war. We've always called bullshit on that. But here they are. War's been over for five years. They're not <sighs> at war, but they're right. building bigger and bigger bombs with the intention of using them. Uh, and, and it's... You know, it's it's hard to see where the justification is for this. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll explore all of this. So the hydrogen bomb, obviously, most people know this, but in case people don't, very, very different to the atomic bombs that were dropped on Japan in 1945. Those were mm-hmm. fission bombs where you right. split atoms apart and the splitting apart of the atoms causes a release of energy where the nuclear bonds are broken. A hydrogen bomb is a fusion bomb, also known as a thermonuclear bomb, different Mm. design. So fission, you're splitting atoms apart. Fusion, you're fusing atoms together, which also releases a lot of energy. Oh, gotcha. But they're they're designed differently. Actually, a fusion bomb contains a fission bomb to sort of start the ignition process, and then it, it goes on. Um, the sun is a is a essentially a fusion bomb, I guess, fusion engine. Mm-hmm. Potentially, right. a, a fusion bomb is potentially a hundred to a thousand times more powerful than an atom Jesus. bomb. They're, you can make them right. smaller, lower mass, um, easier to transport, easier to ship. The first mm-hmm. hydrogen bomb that the U.S. successfully tested is known as Ivy Mike. Uh, for m- megaton, apparently. Ivy right. Mike is for megaton. It detonated with a yield of over 10 megatons. Now, Fat Man, the bomb they right. dropped on Hiroshima, had f- an explosive power of 15 kilotons. Mm. 10 megatons is 10,000 kilotons. Oh, God. 10,000 okay is 666 times as powerful as 15 kilotons. So a big boom. So the number of the beast was came right. into play here. <laughs> it was a beast. Right? It was the number of the beast more powerful. Yes. yes. Yes, I know the number of the beast is actually 616 in the oldest versions of the book of Revelation. I get that. Ah. Yeah, don't worry about ah. that. Hey. Don't let it get in the hey. way of a good story. Yeah. yeah. Like Christians, yeah. don't let facts 
get in the way of a good story. Um, so the first H-bomb was 666 times as powerful as the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. So they, mm-hmm. they can use what they call depleted uranium, non-fissile depleted uranium is the main fuel of an H-bomb. Um, so that's it's good on a number of counts. It's, it's easier to get your hands on. They also right. used deuterium, um, which is a lot easier to get their hands on as well. But we'll talk about the, uh, the, the components of an H-bomb later on. The idea, mm-hmm. who was the first person to ever come up with the idea of a thermonuclear fusion bomb, Ray? Ooh, uh, I don't know, but please allow me to use my guess. Um, was that Teller? But not of Penn and Teller. It's a different Teller. Uh, no, no it was, I, I, it was, was Penn it and Teller's Teller. Yeah, yeah. Before he became a... <laughs> Before he ended up in Vegas, yeah. he was in Los Alamos. Yeah. No, I, I, do, I do know that when they first started working on the fission bomb, Teller automatically went, no, 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 we could do this. We could do this. We could go so much bigger. And Oppenheimer, who's obviously working for the government, General Leslie Groves and all the good stuff, is going, no, we need to go for the fission because, and I'm stretching it here, it's either simpler or or more direct or, or easier, or there was a shorter timeline to get to the fission bomb versus the theoretical fusion bomb. Am I close? So Teller wanted to go for it right out of the gate. But Oppenheimer said, no, we're, we're focusing on the fission. Yeah, actually, the first person to come up with the idea was a Japanese physicist, uh, mm. Tokutaro Hagiwara, right. uh, in oh, 1941, cool. back in May of 1941, in a lecture he mm. gave uh, at the University of Kyoto called Super Explosive U-235, he mentioned right. that uh, uranium has a great possibility of becoming useful as the initiating matter for a quantity of hydrogen. So mm-hmm. you, there was the, which is the basic idea of the hydrogen bomb. It was about six months later, September of 1941, actually, that Enrico Fermi right. suggested to Edward Teller. They were mm. they were chatting at Columbia University in September 1941. And he said, uh, you know, what if you used <laughs> right? a, a fission bomb to ignite a fusion reaction? And mm-hmm. that sort of became Teller's obsession from that point on. But Japanese oh. guy first came up. Of course, as we, I think, talked about when we talked about the atom bomb stuff, Japanese were had no fucking chance of building either. No, way uh, behind. Yeah. Way behind. Yeah. yeah. In those days, but it was a Japanese yeah. scientist that first cooked up the idea. I, I think Edward, uh, I think, sorry, Enrico Fermi m- may have come up with the idea independently. I don't think there's evidence mm-hmm. that he he knew of Hagiwara's lecture, but Hagiwara came up with it first, as far as we know, first right. person to mention it anyway. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still waiting to be the first on something. Uh, I'll let you know. Go ahead. By the way, Teller of Penn and Teller, birth name right. Raymond Teller, Oh, uh, but oh. changed his name by Depol to just Teller at some point. Um, oh. He, uh, before he became a magician in Vegas, taught Greek and Latin at sure. a high school in New Jersey. Yeah. And, and he saw the writing on the wall and said, Greek and Latin are out. Magic is in. That's where all the babes are at. And he switched. Well, famously, he doesn't speak. Um, and that's oh, because, is it the short one? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's the short one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pendulette is the tall one. 
uh, how did he teach speak. Greek and Latin if he didn't speak? Uh, well, gotcha. I think the story is he did talk, oh. uh, but then he, he, he all he could do was speak in ancient Greek and Latin. Uh, and so he, people just he, yeah, he can't speak up. anything else. Just so yeah, especially shut Penn up. said, "Just shut the fuck up." Will you? <laughs> anyway, you're ruining everything with your Greek and Latin. Yeah. Uh huh. Right. He really. <laughs> Killing the buzz of my performance here. I'm hitting on these twin sisters. Now, would you shut the fuck up? And it worked. Anywho. um, Anywho. So uh, this other teller, Edward Teller. um, Right. Spent much of the Manhattan Project years (laughs) trying to figure out how to build what they called the the super bomb or just the super. um, Jam. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He didn't really... Like working on the atom bomb, he wanted to build the the bigger, Boring. bigger, big, big, big bomb, the super. Oh, he needed a he needed a challenge. Yeah, he needed the challenge. Now, interestingly, he's he's known uh, in the U.S. as the father of the hydrogen bomb. But interestingly, mm-hmm. he had earlier tried to convince Oppenheimer to stop the U.S. from using the atom bomb on Japan. Right. He mm. Carried a petition into Oppenheimer's office in Los Alamos in July 1945, right. uh, signed by some of the scientists who were part of their group, trying to get Oppenheimer to convince the US government not to use them. But as I said before, Oppenheimer was a believer that they should be used, and he kind of convinced Teller. Teller left mm-hmm. his office, went back to his fellow Hungarian, Teller was Hungarian, uh, Leo right. Zillard. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said that our only hope is in getting the facts of our results before the people. This might help to convince everybody that the next war would be fatal. For this purpose, actual combat use might even be the best thing. So that was how uh, Oppenheimer convinced him. That was his theory that, right. look, if we use it's this. so bad. Yeah, right, right. Use yeah. it in actual combat once, maybe twice. It yeah. will prevent wars forever. That was their thought. No right. one will ever – they wanted to make war impossible through right. using Good luck. these bombs. Yeah. That was his I, justification. But as, as I said before, as soon as they were used, yeah. Oppenheimer just went, yeah. oh, fuck, what have I done? Whoa. I've become destroyer the destroyer of worlds, worlds etc. Yeah. 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 Now, I did, and this is just a bit of trivia, because we've been doing these history shows long enough to know there are no coincidences and everything's connected, kind of like Leonardo. And here's just one more interesting fact. As you were just saying, Teller, during his time in Los Alamos, spent a lot of it, especially the last couple of years, um, on the super versus helping with the atomic bomb. Who did they give most of his assigned work to? Since he was too busy working on the super, uh, was it a young Feynman? No, Klaus Fuchs. Oh, Klaus Fuchs, who then turned around and gave it to the Russians. So <laughs> thanks, Teller. Yeah. yeah so well, that's... So I'm, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. And yeah. you know, we we mentioned in the Rosenberg. Beginning of the Rosenberg story, they were involved right. in leaking nuclear secrets to the Soviets, and that's part of the reason for telling this story at this juncture yes. is there was a concern that quite a lot of the nuclear scientists had and right. people uh, outside of that group in the U.S. that the U.S. shouldn't have a monopoly on this. Yes, no one should. 
No one no should one have should. a monopoly on it, yes. Right. And the US exactly. was adamant on keeping a monopoly on this power. And yes. th- there were Americans, citizens, who felt that this was not just bad for the rest of the world, but bad for the US to have a monopoly, that it was the wrong way to play it. And that's right. one of the reasons they were leaking secrets to the Soviets was so there was um, sort of bipolar, um, particularly after the US yeah. had used these things in Japan. Yeah. They're like, okay, the US yeah. can't be trusted with this sort of technology. You, there needs you, to be deterrence, you know. There needs to be and, mutual capability. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it was Julius Rosenberg, one of his justifications was, well, the Russians are our allies. We are literally fighting the same enemy. So I don't feel like a traitor giving it to them. And of course, with Truman, uh, who later comes along and uh, is in charge, well, because we wanted to keep this the entire time to ourselves, ex post facto, that makes you a traitor. So again, it's all about perception uh, or perceived motivations, if you will. Yeah. Jumping forward and tell his timeline a bit, he's an interesting guy. Yeah. In 1979, not long after the Three Mile Island accident, Teller had right. a heart attack. Um, for oh, God. people who are too young to remember, Three Mile Island was a, a nuclear facility in Pennsylvania, um, mm-hmm. had a partial meltdown of one of its reactors in 1979. Teller right. survived the heart attack, but then he blamed it on Jane Fonda. Explain. Sorry. Elaborate. She was so hot on her exercise videos that he nearly died from from watching what it was on his VHS. No. Yeah, I think he yeah. just watched Barbarella. I just watched Barbar- <laughs> rewatched Barbarella recently, and uh, that opening, the opening credit sequence where she takes off her spacesuit and she's yeah. completely naked. Yeah. And then the uh, the graphics for the title sort of just cover up her nips and just, her bits and <laughs> it's floating around. It's smoking, smoking hot. You almost she had a heart smoking attack. Smoking hot. That's wow. Yeah. yeah. Now, she had just appeared um, in the film The China Syndrome, which mm-hmm. depicted a nuclear reactor accident, and it was released two weeks before the Three Mile Island oh, accident. People freak. Greatest, mar- Barry and Stan, greatest yeah, marketing strategy they ever came out with. <laughs> you know what would really help get the word out is if there's an actual nuclear reactor <laughs> meltdown. Let's see what we can do. They cost it. They literally no, put the movie no, out and they cost it. Leave yeah. no stone unturned <laughs> is Barry and Stan's <laughs> motto. We will do anything for our clients. <laughs> I mean anything. <laughs> Nuclear meltdown, kill, assassination, whatever. We're here for you 24-7. And Jane Fonda spoke out against nuclear power while promoting the film. And after the Three Mile Island accident, yeah. Teller was speaking publicly, defending nuclear energy, testifying yeah. to its safety and reliability. Mm-hmm. And after one sort of very busy period sort of defending it, he had a heart attack. So he felt that he was um, – she drove him into working that yes. hard to defend nuclear power. Her and Ralph Nader were the, yeah. the sort of two of the bigger voices. He signed a two-page ad in a July 31st, 1979 issue of the Washington Post with the headline, I was the only victim of Three Mile Island. <laughs> It opens with this. On May 7th, a few weeks after the accident at Three Mile Island, I was in Washington. 
I was there to refute some of that propaganda that Ralph Nader, Jane Fonda, and their kind are spewing to the news media in their attempt to frighten people away from nuclear power. I'm 71 years old and I was working 20 hours a day. The strain was too much. The next day I suffered a heart attack. You might say that I was the only one whose health was affected by that reactor near Harrisburg. No, that would be wrong. It was not the reactor. It was Jane Fonda. Reactors are not dangerous. Right. But her nipples are, and they should be outlawed. Uh, I'm not going to jump uh, jump ahead yet, but I've got some other teller stories that are just as tacky. Uh, it, okay. It, if I could, if I could use that, I may. Sure. Go. Should I jump into it? Okay, so as we're going to see, or maybe not, I'm not sure how much detail we're going to go into, but we probably will. Um, Teller was working with a, another guy uh, named Stanislaw. And to make a long story short, I'm going to save that for later. They come up, they, they make a breakthrough. And now, now that there's this major breakthrough that has to do with the H-bomb, which we'll cover later, everybody's jockeying for, for positions about trying to get credit, you know, trying to get in the history books. And like you said, Teller is known as the father of the H-bomb. But a couple of years before Teller dies, and this is in 1999, he's he's doing an interview with uh, Scientific American, and and the guy just uh, he, the guy just says, "Okay, H bomb, give it to me straight. Who contributed? Who did what? You know, just let's just get this out right now." And Teller goes, and and, and I'm reading this quote. He goes, "I contributed. Um, Ulan, or however you say Stanislaw's last name, did not." I'm sorry I have to answer in such in this abrupt way. Ulan was rightly dissatisfied with an old approach. He came to me with an idea, uh, a, a part of which I had already been work I, that I had already worked out and was having difficulty trying to get people to listen. He signed the paperwork to work with me, but when it came down to it, he backed away. He says, "I don't believe in this anymore." And then, um, so so he, so he has that near the end of his life. He's saying, I did it all. This guy didn't do anything. But a couple of years before that, he had written a paper and he said, look, it was me. It was a whole bunch of people. We worked together. You know, it was a team effort. Yay, team. And, but then right before he dies, maybe he feels like he can get away with it. He's like, you know, I did everything. Stanislaw didn't do anything. I'm sorry if that hurt someone's feelings, but I'm, I'm kind of the shit. I'm kind of the big deal here. And uh, thank you for coming by. So again trying to get credit for something that I'm sure was a team effort. And we'll probably go into some of that later, but but Stanislaw certainly did his part to make the H-bomb a reality. 20 years from now, you'll be doing the same thing. Oh, the <laughs> totally. podcasts? Totally. Yeah. Totally. I, I, my I, I idea. Did it all. Like, my, I yeah. invented I long form. <laughs> <laughs> I let Cam take the credit, but really I, yeah. I did it all. Yeah. Um, well, in the 1980s, Teller – became a strong campaigner for what was known as the Strategic Defense Initiative, a.k.a. Star Wars. Ooh. I remember this from my childhood, man. Um, Yes. This was pushed heavily by the Reagan administration. It was the idea of using ground and satellite-based lasers, which would be able to use particle beams and missiles to shoot down ICBMs coming from the Soviets, and Teller was accused of deliberately overselling the capabilities of the program. Oh, and, right. Uh, when when one guy uh, tried to uh, point out that he was talking a load of bullshit, <laughs> Teller tried to have this guy fired. Yeah. Um, Faked a heart attack. And yeah. His, Teller's... Uh, 
claims about you know what the capabilities of the Star Wars initiative became the basis of a joke in the scientific community a, a teller right was a new unit of unfounded optimism <laughs> but one one teller was so large that most events had to be measured in nano tellers or pico tellers <laughs> Oh, I like that. Oh my god. All I, all I remember from that time period was George Lucas going, Would you please quit calling it Star Wars? That's my shit. I don't need this tied yeah. to my legacy. That's I that's I mean, I remember Three Mile Island, I remember people being freaked out, I remember the Star Wars, but mostly just George going, Don't that's mine. TM, yeah. go get your own title. Yeah. But it trademarked but, that. But, yeah. but it's stuck. So anyway. Sued sued Ronald Reagan said I trademarked it. <laughs> So anyway, uh, anyway, you mentioned Stanislaw Ulam. The H-bomb yeah. is known in the USA. The, the, the design of it is known as the Teller Ulam configuration. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ulam was a Polish-American mathematician and nuclear physicist. He was part of the Manhattan Project. And yeah. apart from the H-bomb, also discovered the concept of cellular automata along with John von Neumann, who we'll talk about over the next couple of episodes, right. he invented the Monte Carlo method of computation mm. and suggested nuclear pulse propulsion. Oh, Star Wars indeed. Uh, do you want to break any of that down? I got some of that, but some of it was over my head. That's amazing. Well, it's anything that's <laughs> more than three foot high is going to be over your head, right? But I know a little bit about some of these things. I know a right. little bit about... Uh, cellular automata because 20-odd years ago I read A New Kind of Science by Stephen Wolfram, right. uh, which talked about cellular automata. So cellular automata, uh, it's a bit like a board game, uh, like mm. chess or checkers, mm-hmm. um, but takes place on a much larger board, like an infinitely large board. Right. Imagine a, an infinitely large chess board and each square on the board is a cell. Mm. And each cell can be in a number of different states. Right. So if you think about a chessboard, each square can have a piece on it or not have a piece on it. Ah. In, a, in cellular automata, a cell might be just on or off, or it might be one of several colors. It could be black or white or something else entirely. And when you play a cellular automata mm-hmm. game, right. you run it through, there are certain rules that determine – which uh, what happens to successive cells. So, for example, mm-hmm. every cell has rules built into it that determines its own color, let's say, right. based on the color of the cells around it. Okay. So if it has, if it's surrounded by all black cells, mm-hmm. it's going to be white or it's going to be black. Or if it has, if it's surrounded by three black cells and white cells, it might be black. If it's surrounded by three white cells in a black cell, it might be white. Right. There are each cell has rules built into it. And sense. it basically looks at the cells around it and determines its state based on those rules. Now, nature works a lot in this way. Yeah, I'm thinking um, Leo. Yeah. Yeah. So Leo would, would have fucking loved this shit. Yeah. <laughs> we know that cells in an organism, right. human or plant, animal, um, quite often determine their uh, function based mm-hmm. on 
the cells around them. They look at what those cells are doing and determine their function based on that. Right. During the you know, like the embryonic stage of mm-hmm. humans, um, cells get switched on or switched off based on the cells near them. They, they, there's like a coding, some sort of transmission, chemical right. coding that tells them what That's to be. Exactly. Stephen Wolfram, in his book, New Kind of Science, came out, I think, in sort of mm, 2000-ish, mm-hmm. uh, maybe 2005 it would have been. Uh, terrific book. He basically was arguing then and continues to argue today that the uh, underlying programming of the universe is cellular or some form of cellular right. automata. Wow. Badass. It's basically the universe is a is a computational program that's built on cellular automata at some sort of quantum level, right? And yeah. everything. And if you understand, or if we could understand mm-hmm. the algorithm that at the basis of that, you could predict the entire universe. Everything wow. in the universe yeah. is governed by this, and. Um, you know, he, he basically called this a new, as a new kind of science, a new kind of mathematics, um, basically cool. a new kind of way of thinking about what drives um, the universe. Right. Anyway, that's cellular automata. And as I said, Stanislaw Ulam and John von Neumann, they were like best friends, um, cooked all of this stuff up back in the you know, 40s, um, right. 50s, 40s, 50s. Um uh, 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 what else? Oh, there's a famous game by John Conway called The Game of Life that anyone who's around in the 70s will have heard of mm-hmm. uh, based on cellular automata. It's like a a computer game that you can play that where you have like cells that behave like organisms and you can – I used to have it running on my computer or my iPad even. You, you can adjust – you can adjust the rules mm-hmm. for these things that look like cells, but they you know look oh, like cool. when I say cells, they look like organic cells, but right. they're really computer cells. And you can you can play around with the rules, and it will determine how these things grow, how they evolve, what survives, what dies, just like by adjusting the yeah. algorithm. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So what else? Uh, they, um, can I give a you nuclear pulse propulsion? Yeah. What? Can you give me what? Uh, AIDS? What? No. For that. no. The, the important thing about giving AIDS is the sherry, not the actual AIDS itself. No, I had one more teller story, but I didn't want to interrupt your flow. I, I apologize. Don't interrupt my flow. So nuclear <laughs> pulse propulsion, I know a little bit about because I just read the three body problem trilogy. Oh, yeah. I got that on my toilet right now. Not really. Go ahead. What, what's it about? <laughs> Three Body Problem is a science fiction trilogy right. came out a few years ago, written by China's number one science fiction author Xu Xin Lin Xu Xin Lu. Um, <clears throat> it's being made into a Netflix series, I think. Oh, cool! Um, Tony Coniston recommended these uh, to me years ago, and okay. I, I I read the first book and then forgot about it, and then he was banging on about it again recently. So I, I picked it up again and read the just finished the trilogy like a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talk about nuclear pulse propulsion in it. Again, this is an idea that Stanislav uh, Ulam came up with. It's basically a type of spacecraft propulsion. Right. Which is based on the idea of detonating nuclear bombs to propel <gasps> spaceships. Oh, yeah. So in oh, the book, yeah, 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 yeah. They're trying to send um, 
it's actually just a brain in a spaceship to a, sure. a an alien civilization that, that that's attacking them. There's this alien civilization that's um, four light years away and it's going to take 400 years to get to Earth, but they're coming to destroy the Earth. Right. And the humans come up with this idea of trying to implant a spy in this civilization, and nice. they can't they can't afford to send a it's they they can't um, propel fast yeah. enough a full human body. So basically, they take a brain out of a guy who volunteers, yeah. and they put his brain Idiot. in like some sort of cryonic suspension right. in this spaceship, and they're going to send the spaceship to this. A, a alien civilization and their their theory is the alien civilization is sufficiently advanced that it would be curious enough to take this human brain and mm. rebuild it into a, an organism yeah. bring it back to life and to try and understand humans better mm. and then they are hoping that this guy will then be able to spy on them and report back to the humans what they're doing anyway the way that they propel this craft that he's in with his what his brain is in is through nuclear bombs. So they, you have a, you, you send a spacecraft out and it deposits nuclear bombs like every hundred thousand kilometers through right, space. Right. And then his spacecraft has like some sort of a heat shield behind it, mm -hmm. and they, you send it off using regular propulsion. Um, when it gets behind or ahead of the first nuclear bomb, it explodes. Right. This oh. sail that it has, yes, yeah, absorbs pushes. the energy that pushes it to the next bomb, which explodes. It pushes it to the next bomb, which explodes, and and then wow. you, you know it's they're trying to achieve like near speed of light. Um, yeah, speed it's like here. hitting boost several over and over and over again on your Wii game. That's yeah. that's freaking cool. That's freaking cool. That's called nuclear pulse propulsion. Right. And again, Stunner's Love, Ulam, came yeah. up with that. Um, I didn't know anything about Monte Carlo method, so I asked GPT to explain it to me. Right. Um, here's what GPT said. Let's start by understanding that Monte Carlo methods are a broad class of computational algorithms that use randomness or random sampling to solve problems. Mm -hmm. These methods can be used in situations where the problem is too complex or has too many variables to be solved using standard deterministic methods. Imagine you want to figure out something really complicated, like the average number of grains of sand on a beach. Wow. Counting each grain one by one <laughs> would be impossible. But what if you could just grab a handful of sand, count the grains in that handful, and then multiply by the number of handfuls you think make up the beach? It won't be exact, but it'll right. get you a good estimate. This, this is, is the essence of the Monte Carlo method. Right. Instead of trying to calculate something complex directly, you simulate or sample a bunch of simpler versions of the problem, then use those samples to get an estimate. Ooh. Now, suppose we extend this idea to more complex problems, like understanding how a nuclear reaction works, predicting the weather, or modeling financial markets. For all these complex systems, we can run multiple simulations with different random inputs to understand the range of possible outcomes and their probabilities. The randomness is important because it helps cover all the possibilities. By using randomness, you're not just guessing one outcome or another. Right. You're exploring many different possibilities. So in summary, ULAM's Monte Carlo method is a way of estimating solutions to complex problems by using randomness and a lot of simpler simulations or samples. It's like throwing a bunch of darts at a dartboard to get an estimate of where the center is, rather than trying to calculate it directly. 
It's a powerful tool for tackling problems that would be too hard to solve in a straightforward way. That's and cool. Then when I read that, I thought, oh, yeah, Tony has talked about this on the QAV podcast at some point. Right. He's talked about the Monte Carlo method for some I like that. So anyway, Stanislav Ulam, super smart motherfucker. They're yes. all super smart, these guys, Teller, Ulam, yeah. Oppenheimer, uh, and von Neumann, who yeah. we will get to uh, shortly. There's How another we time. Oh, I don't know, but there's another brilliant person. Um, I think he's German, so I don't know how to say the last name. Hans, I'm just going to say Hans Beth, B-E-T-H-E, Betha. Uh, I don't Beth, I don't know how to say it. Anyway, so he's there as well, and his claim to fame is that he discovered stellar nucleosynthesis, which is the nuclear fusion that takes place in stars. So I think we can all agree that Hans is a pretty smart motherfucker as well. This is what he writes about the whole Teller, uh, Stanislaw, kerfuffle, because as many people that liked Teller, there was an equal number that didn't like him. And I, that's probably you know true of anybody in any field. But anyway, so um, Hans writes, for the sake of history, I think it is more precise to say that Stanislaw is the father because he provided the seed, and Teller is the mother, because he remained with the child. As for me, I guess I'm the midwife. So again, it was a group effort, but it was the, the breakthrough that these two came up with, however they did it, uh, whoever did more, you know, that's not important, that allows the hydrogen bomb to move forward. So, But you're right, this was a very controversial thing, and there were a lot of scientists who were like, no, 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 this is bad. We've already got the ability to destroy all life on, on Earth. Why do we need a weapon that can do it even faster? And that's you know, not Truman's con uh, concern. His concern is looking tough uh, in front of the Russians. But anyway, I just wanted to throw Hans in there because I like that. That it is. It's it's like a child. You. It's a team. You birth it together. And I just wanted to throw that in there as well. Yeah, uh, a lot of smart guys. So back to the design of the H bomb. Yes, um, the Teller Ulam configuration that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So basically, the idea is that you the bomb is constructed, or no, the bomb uh, explodes in stages. Right. The detonation of each stage provides the energy to ignite the next stage, and you can keep stringing these together in theory as long as you want. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, the bombs that these guys built were known as two-stage bombs. Then the Russians built Saar Bomber, which is thought to have been a three-stage fission-fusion-fusion reaction. Wow. But the, the, the basic idea of an H-bomb is that you have a fission-type bomb, like Fat Man, mm -hmm. which is the trigger, and then a secondary section, which consists of the fusion fuel, hydrogen or deuterium, and the energy released by the primary stage, the fission bomb, right. ignites the second part of it. You need that amount of heat and wow. radiation yes. to ignite the fusion reaction, which then is the, where the real uh, energy release happens. Right. Um, and uh, you know, one of the advantages, as I said before, apart from the fact that they use different materials – um, and they can be smaller, they can be lighter, uh, which sort of, you know, sounds strange, more powerful bomb that's that's lighter. Right. But uh, you only need enough fissionable material to ignite the fusion stage, and if the fusion stage is using, say, hydrogen as a, a you know, energy source, hydrogen right. is obviously very light. So it's, yes. you know, it's not... Um, 
you know, uranium. It's not a metal that you're trying to explode here. Exactly. Um, the uh, you know the fission bombs are limited in yield because you you have to pack all the material together mm-hmm. for the explosion, and there's. It's only a certain amount you can put together, A, before it becomes too heavy to transport. Right. And B, um, before it becomes what they call supercritical, where it will there'll be too much fissileable, mm-hmm. fissile material in there, and the reaction will just sort of get ahead of itself before not, it explodes. Not good. Right. right. Yeah, not good. Bad <laughs> reaction. Yeah. Sorry for all the anyway, scientific terms. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. So anyway, I think the key point here is that Truman's desire to have bigger and badder bombs than the Soviets sort of puts the dropping of the A-bombs on Japan in perspective. The war's been over for five years, yes, but he still wants bigger bombs than the Soviets. He's not at war with the Soviets. He doesn't have a war to finish right. yet, yes. but he just wants the US to have the biggest bombs in the world. My bomb is bigger <laughs> than your bomb. And... <laughs> Yeah, sorry. I just want to. I I don't want to. I apologize, but again, we have to remember that. But uh, decisions aren't made in a vacuum, and I wanted to get your opinion on this. As you said at the very beginning of this episode, Truman is dealing with um, the Soviets in Eastern Europe. He's dealing with uh, the fact, and I can't remember at some point. You know, when they get to, I think you mentioned that they test their own bomb, which they got from us because of the spies. Um, there's something else going on. Then the Rosenbergs are arrested, which we'll get to that later. But but when Truman makes this decision, and even though it's a, in my opinion, a, a bad decision, he, he's not just making it, just sitting in his office with nothing else to consider. There are there's context around him, and I'm just imagining um, FDR or some other president going, uh, "Okay, now I hear what you're saying, but we don't need the super bomb, the one bomb that can wipe out a city. We're good." But but sometimes I just I just want us to remember that Truman makes this decision, and he he should be shellacked for helping start the Cold War for for bringing out the hydrogen bomb. It probably would have happened at some point anyway in our history or in the world's history. But again, he he does he is in over his head. There's a lot of negative things going on besides just politics. And I think he's just trying to survive day after day. I think he's just trying to keep his head above water. That doesn't mean that some of the decisions that he made as president are, you know, still with us today and still made the world a lot less safe than what it could have been. I I don't know. I just, I just think about him completely over his head going, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? And at the same time, trying to appear tough in front of the world at the same time. Yeah. And, of course, we are still living today in the shadow of these decisions. Exactly. Like these, exactly. The, the, these guys, you know, the, the leaders of the world at the time, but particularly the Americans, um, had an opportunity in the late 40s to bring the world together yes. around some sort of an agreement Kumbaya. not to go not to go down this path of building nuclear weapons and they they sort of toyed with the idea and they we've covered that I think in earlier episodes mm-hmm. but uh finally they made a decision not to take an international approach exactly. with this exactly. and to create a climate of fear uh supposedly some sort of mutual deterrence and here we are today with the war in Ukraine and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the constant threat, again, 
that the Russians may use, may det- determine at some point to use nuclear weapons on Ukraine. Right. And that will, if they do that, will no doubt start off a chain of events where nuclear weapons will be used on Russia in retaliation by Ukraine's oh, yes. allies. Oh, yes. Um, so, you know, we're, we're living in this very dangerous time yet again. You know, 10, 20 years ago, I think most of us assumed the threat of uh, nuclear war had been removed f- from us, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But yeah. we're, we're, we're back in this period again where it's a genuine possibility. Yeah. In latex. And um, yeah. I, want to f- I want to finish this episode, if I can, mm-hmm. with a quote from Curtis LeMay. We've talked Please. about him in the past. He was the, at the time, he were in World War Two. He was the U.S. Air Force general in charge of the B-29s. That, right. Among other things, dropped the nuclear bombs on Japan. Mm-hmm. Later served as chief of staff of the United States Air Force from 61 to 65. But I read this quote from him, and, and, and I was thinking of, you know, what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, you know, the apparent bombing of the Nova Kakovka Dam a couple of days ago. Right. Um, Ukraine's blaming Russia. Russia's blaming Ukraine. Um, the U.S. doesn't seem to be ready to take a position on it, last I heard. Right. By the way, you seen the latest on the Nord Stream stuff? No, no. Oh, okay. So quick quick diversion. We've we've covered this in the Bullshit Filter series, but you know, last year the Nord Stream pipelines that was carrying gas from Russia to Europe, to mm-hmm. Germany, were destroyed at the time. The world pretty much blamed Russia for blowing up its own pipeline. Right. Um, and, and then a couple of months ago, veteran US investigative journalist Seymour Hersh said that according to his sources, it was America that actually blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Right. The, the White House sort of didn't respond to that and then started <laughs> to trickle out a month or two later that – Actually, they think it was the Ukrainians. And then just in this last week, a couple of days ago, mm-hmm. the White House came out and said, actually, we know it was the Ukrainians who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Oh. We knew they were going to do it a month before it happened. Um, we know that they did it. Right. Then Zelensky came out yesterday and said, it oh, wasn't us. Oh, Ukraine didn't do it. I can say that categorically. We know nothing about it. Any decision like that would have had to have gone through me. I didn't give the order. Right. So now, you know, first of all, they were all blaming Russia. Now you've yeah. got the US blaming Ukraine, Ukraine denying that right. they did it. Not me. Yeah. As Matt Taby said, like, how can you ever believe anything the US government ever says? <laughs> like a year ago when it happened, a bit less than a year ago, I think it was like September last year, mm-hmm. they actually were a little bit cautious at the time. They said they didn't know exactly who did it, but all fingers pointed to Russia. Yeah. The US media kind of hedged a little bit, but, you know, there were opinion pieces and whatever. It's right. Lots of European politicians and media people said it was Russia. The U.S. kind of went along that it was the Russia kind of probably did it story. Now the U.S. is saying, well, actually, we knew it was Ukraine who did it all along. We just didn't want to say that. (laughs) So literally they just, if not outright lied, this is the Biden administration, if not outright lied to the American people, 
at least held back what they knew to be the truth about it from the American people right. and allowed these stories about it being Russia to get ahead. Now they're saying Ukraine absolutely did it. Ukraine's saying we absolutely did it. So, <laughs> but they're telling us the you, truth about U, UFOs. So, oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good, son. And telling us the truth about what's happening in Ukraine. Now, this is why I keep saying in the bullshit field, you have to take everything you hear about the Ukraine war with a grain of salt. Right. Because everyone's lying all the time. We, yes. We just don't know exactly which stories are lies. <laughs> But we do know that right. they're lying to us in, in some way, shape, or form. You can't take anything um, at face yeah. value. Anyway, there's a lot of talk about war crimes. Um, Russia accuses Ukraine of war crimes. Ukraine accuses Russia of war crimes. The US accuses Russia of war crimes. Um, here's what Curtis LeMay said after World War II. Right. Killing Japanese didn't bother me very much at that time. He's talking about dropping bombs on um, yeah. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was getting the war over that bothered me, so I wasn't worried particularly about how many people we killed in getting the job done. I suppose if I had lost the war, I would have been tried as a war criminal. Fortunately, we were on the winning side. <laughs> Incidentally, everybody bemoans the fact that we dropped the atomic bomb and killed a lot of people at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That, I guess, is immoral, but nobody says anything about the incendiary attacks on every industrial city in Japan, and the first attack on Tokyo killed more people than the atomic bomb did. Apparently, that was all right. I guess the direct answer to your question is yes, every soldier thinks something of the moral aspects of what he is doing, but all war is immoral, and if you let that bother you, you're not a good soldier. Oh, that's one way to look at it. We we should start every atomic bomb dropping story with the line something along. By the time America dropped the two atomic bombs, every, and I mean every major city on the four islands of Japan had been firebombed and bombed over and over again. There was not much left. P kids were sent out to get acorns to make coffee. So the atomic so why is the atomic bomb so much worse than killing everybody with just fire or regular ordinance. I don't know. Maybe it's the idea. But, yeah, no, he's right. We, we certainly killed a lot more people with conventional weapons than we did with the two atomic bombs. I think it's just the idea of dropping bombs on an unsuspecting civili two civilian populations. Yeah. But I think the point I take away from that yeah. is even, you know, Curtis LeMay, Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force, basically saying, yeah, I was a war criminal. Yeah. And all war is immoral. So the hypocrisy, I guess, of accusing this side or that side of war crimes in this day yeah. and age when, you know, I yeah. saw one guy, um, one American on Facebook yesterday saying that, um, you know, he he hates the Russian people and he thinks they should all be killed and all destroyed. Wow. And we have to destroy Russia for what they've done to Ukraine. I said, okay, so what about... <laughs> North Korea, what the Americans did in North Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Native Americans. Do you Sorry. do you uh, do you hate America as well, and should America be destroyed as well, or just you know the other countries, the other bad guys? I don't know how many times I have to say this, Cam. The other bad guys deserve what they get. We, when we occasionally do bad things, are doing it for good reasons. That's no, what I yeah, was taught. That's yeah. what I was taught. Our justifications are the right justifications. Their <laughs> justifications are the wrong. And they should die. Right. Mm. 
Anyway. All right, let's let's stop this episode there. Uh, we're nearly at an hour, and we'll come back to more H-bomb stories uh, in the next episode. An iron curtain has descended across the continent.